Hello, my name's Kay Taro. I'm an anaesthetic trainee in NHS Tayside, and I've recently completed the Scottish Clinical Leadership Fellowship. During this year, I shadowed many great leaders from across the public sector. In this podcast, I'll interview some of these leaders and we'll hear all about their leadership journeys. First up is Jason Leach. I'll let him introduce himself. Hi, so I, I'm the National Clinical Director of the Scottish Government and one of the senior leaders allegedly <laughs> Uh, trying to be in charge of a health and social care system for five and a half million people. So I have a couple of specific roles. I lead a piece of the civil service, which is maybe the, the seems like the most boring bit, but some days is the most exciting. So I do uh, all of safety and quality. So all of person-centered care, the safety of the delivery system. And there's a load of civil servants who spend their time doing that. I uh, have responsibility for planning. So that's like how many neurosurgical units will we have? How many places will we do cleft lip and palate in? That, that kind of work. We sponsor Healthcare Improvement Scotland. So that's all the scrutiny, improvement and evidence. So that's one piece of the puzzle. A second piece of the puzzle is the leading improvement team, which is a all public and third sector improvement consultancy, really, from inside the government. So that takes me outside healthcare. That's a group of very clever and driven improvement advisors who work in climate change, criminal justice, education. The, we were just talking about a piece of work in the college sector about getting people to graduate after they start in further education college. So that's a whole different section. And then the third thing is a little bit perhaps weird and harder to understand, but along with the other two senior clinicians, in the government, in that senior leadership team, I think we together have a joint responsibility for morale, for PR, for talking to the public and the workforce about the health service to try and create a balanced image of what is happening within the health service. So Catherine, who's the chief medical officer, and Fiona, who's the chief nurse, and I try and do that together. We try and share that, and that's sometimes on the telly. It's sometimes in professional journals. It's sometimes talking at conferences. So you're a dentist to trade. I am. How did you end up in this position? So it's a, it's a long, boring story, which I'll shorten. So I, I graduated in Glasgow as a dentist in 91 and did dentistry, uh, as people would imagine it, high street dentistry for a year. And it wasn't my finest year, you could argue. Uh, nor was it the finest year for the poor patients. So I went back to the hospitals and I trained as an oral surgeon for some years and I became a consultant oral surgeon in Glasgow in the West where all the facial fractures were, where a lot of the cancer was and was part of a big surgical team in the dental school and at that time at the Victoria Infirmary, now tragically replaced by the Queen Elizabeth, which is lovely. And But I became an academic, did a doctorate and a relatively traditional path of going to be a academic consultant for the rest of my life and thought maybe there's maybe there's more maybe there's something else and completely randomly and when we come to talk about leadership a lot of my leadership is kind of random and my advice would be often to follow the random path I discovered a fellowship in the states about which I knew nothing other than I was a little bit bored and fancied a change. And Mrs. Leach, who's a high school teacher, 
was willing to come with me and we went to Boston for a year. Turned into nearly 18 months. I did a public health degree in Boston and I went to work for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Many people will know them as IHI and it completely changed my career. If, if you can have a life-changing moment, it's a little bit of a cliche, but it literally changed my professional life and changed quite a lot of my personal life. New network, new friends, new part of the world. Came back and did clinical work part-time then and came to work for the government part-time. And then gradually that has transformed in the last 12 years into two different jobs. Uh, and now I find myself as the clinical director of the system. So what was it about your time in Boston that really, was there a moment or? I think too, when you, it's a little reductionist, but you, when, you, when you look back, it seems more linear than it was. I'm sure in the, in the time it was a bit chaotic. There was quite a lot of uh, going out and eating and drinking with pals. So there was quite a nice network of people who you met. But there were two principal things I learned. The first thing I learned was pretty formal. It was a master's in public health. But inside that, I learned uh, about public health. And I had kind of understood that there was something else. I mean, you can't have Sir Harry Burns as a mentor and not realize there might be something more to the world than just fixing the individual fracture that comes your way. So I knew there was a housing problem and a poverty problem and a everything else problem. So I did the public health thing and it, I got really excited and enthusiastic about trying to fix populations. But it, inside the Masters in Public Health, there wasn't really a method. There was a lot of diagnosis and it was really exciting and important, but there wasn't really treatment. And IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I think gave me that other side of the coin. They gave me a method that you could apply both to acute transformation and care, but also apply perhaps to population health. And IHI is the global leader in method for systems redesign and would still be considered that even now. When I was there, Don Berwick was the chief executive and he was the early days of that IHI fellowship. And we got to literally drink from the fire hose of all of these great thinkers who were doing systems design in their hospitals around the world and in other industries. So we met really interesting people who were transforming T telecoms industries and financial industry, but also people who ran Cincinnati Children's, who ran Jönköping County Council in Sweden, who were running things in Singapore. So suddenly my uh, world went from a relatively niche oral surgery market to this global set of experts. And I was intrigued by it, but I also saw outcomes changing for people. So I, I finally was able to combine this interest I had in population health and where I thought particularly Scotland should try and go, but also with a real method that led to change. I, it wasn't the only method. You can, you can Google method and you find 20 of them. But this was a method which I saw working in pieces of the world. So, and then I came home and tried to, in a small way, tried to adapt it to Scotland. And so you've mentioned a few sort of inspirational leaders there, Don Berwick and Harry Burns. Was there any inspirational things that they said to you that made you think? Again, when you look back, I suppose you, you, you reduce life to, the, to moments rather than the longer uh, correspondence. But I, I remember going for dinner with Don. He, won't, he probably won't even remember this story. But each of the fellows at that time got a meal with Don Berwick at the end of your fellowship. And that was quite a big deal. You went out just with Don Berwick. 
and uh, everybody who had been to this meal, and I wasn't first, there were six of us, and I wasn't first, and they said, wait for dessert, because dessert's when the real advice comes. And sure enough, the starter in the main course, he was charming, completely charming. Yeah, how wonderful it was to have me there, and how he'd seen me grow through the year, and entirely positive for about an hour. And then the dessert came, and I thought, right, here we go. And sure enough, he said, his, his opening sentence was, just, well, just one piece of advice, Jason. And I said, okay, the other fellas told me this was coming. And he laughed, and he said, my, my advice is that you're a good talker. In fact, I've really met somebody who can talk about this method like you can, but you've never improved anything in your life. You need to now go and improve something. Just improve something. And it's reductionist, but it's excellent advice. So, of course you need the theory. Of course you need to learn. You need to sit at the feet of people who have done it and watch and shadow people and all of that. But his fundamental advice was you have to personally go and do something. You have to find the thing that's going to be your thing. Now, that's going to be in a team. There's going to be lots of people. But that was his advice just before I got on the plane to come back to Scotland was go and improve something. And it was, it was very, very good advice. And was that the birth of Scottish Patient Safety Programme? So, so that was my uh, inspiration for starting to think about the Scottish Patient Safety Programme. It, there, is, there is no greater example in the last 12 years of a team effort, though. It would be naive and stupid to think that was me. There was a perfect storm of a number of people coming to a point in their careers where they, where they wanted to do something, and there was the Vale of Leaven. The Vale of Leaven was a tragic set of circumstances where over 30 people died because of an infection which we gave them. The health service gave them. It was our fault. And we had a new government. So we had a new minister, Nicola Sturgeon, and she was also enthusiastic for change. So I, was come, I came back from America. Uh, the SNP got elected. The Veil of Leaven had happened. And Derek Feely, who was then the head of policy in the health department, he came back from a different fellowship in America. And we had met in the States. He had been doing a Harkins fellowship on the West Coast. And we met in the middle of America, and the wives became friends. Literally, the wives became friends. We're still not sure we actually like each other. But the wives became pals. And uh, he and I then came back. Harry was the chief medical officer. He and I, he was in the government. I was in the health service. And the stars kind of aligned, along with IHI's involvement and Berwick and others. And the birth of the Scottish Patient Safety Programme was then uh, possible. The other ingredient was, and it's really important and often forgotten, is that Tayside were already doing it. So Tayside had won a competition to be the Scottish hospital inside the Safer Patients Initiative. So when I was in the States, the Safer Patients Initiative was the first IHI project in the UK. One hospital in each of the four UK countries doing bundles of care for the first time, doing surgical checklists for the first time, all, all the things we now take for granted. And Tayside and Nine Wells in particular had been that hospital. So we had a prototype site with enthusiastic leaders and medical directors and nurse directors and chief execs who were excited. And then we came back with this slightly weird theory and we had some political leadership, some political willingness to take a bit of a risk. And that's what became now 
the Scottish Patient Safety Programme. So during our year of clinical fellows, we've obviously jumped from being clinicians, trainees um, into this government world and world of leading, learning about leadership. And a lot of us have talked about imposter syndrome. Have you ever had imposter syndrome? Yeah, every day. But I, I once said to Don Berwick that I, 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 really, I was really, I can't remember what, what the incident was, but I, I was on the phone to him and I said, I'm really worried because I woke up this morning and I wondered what you thought of me because I was struggling with something. I said, Don wouldn't like that. I'm struggling with this. And he said, well, Jason, every day I wake up and I wonder what Lucian Leap thinks of me. And Lucian Leap is one of the fathers of patient safety, one of Berwick's mentors, and one of the men who led directly to the creation of IHI. So I, I think it's mature and normal, as long as it doesn't cripple you, as long as it doesn't stop you getting out of bed and taking a risk and trying. And if you, if you confess to it with your peer group, you'll find everybody is in the same position if they've if they're paying any attention to the difficulty of these jobs then they're having exactly the same sensation that doesn't mean that you you shouldn't be confident and positive about what you're trying to do because it can become crippling you can think no i have nothing to offer i have no contribution i'll just go and do something quiet and hidden it, so so you have to use that imposter syndrome to 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 empower you to do something. And that's what I think I've, I've tried to do, but I still, I still get it. I mean, I, I, I'm in meetings now where sometimes I look around the room and think, really, how on earth did I end up in here? What, what is this? And it might be about, I, I, I'm about to do something quite radical in community justice. So I'm thinking this is, there's, there's the Lord Advocate, there's the head of the judiciary, I think they're called, this is the head of this over here. What, why, how is Jason from a little high school in Airdrie end up in this conversation? So you have to be humble and sensitive to that, but equally use your experience to make some kind of contribution if you can. So for clinicians, quite often we go through our training and we don't have any formal leadership training. Um, and we come out the other end and we're consultants and we're given uh, leadership positions such as education and, and managing departments. What advice would you give people like us? I think it's really difficult. There's not many professional groups uh, like doctors and dentists who are presumed to be leaders just because everybody thinks they're clever. It turns out that they're not all clever. It turns out some of them are really good leaders and some of them aren't. Exactly the same as lawyers, civil servants, teachers and every other group of human beings you meet. They're not any more special than any other group. So. I don't know if you can learn to be a senior leader, but I think it doesn't do any harm. So there are things you can get better at. You can get better at empowering others. You can get better at self-analysis. You can get better at speaking up and not speaking up. And, and I think anything that helps you understand your own behaviours and the behaviours of others in your peer group and in those you're trying to lead has got to be helpful. So I think formal leadership training, whatever that might mean, I just did inverted commas in the air. That doesn't really work on a podcast. But I, I think formal leadership training is important. And I think continued leadership mentoring and coaching is important. I didn't have a coach for, in my clinical work. I mean, I had mentors in my clinical work. But only when I started to take these really senior jobs in the government did somebody suggest I have an actual coach, somebody who does leadership for a living. And I've had the same leadership coach for 
a number of years. And those who know me might think we're wasting our money, but she is really challenging. She holds a mirror up very, very well and is a little hard on me, actually, but I think that's deliberate. So I think you can get better at being a leader. I'm not sure I'm the best example of that progression and journey, but I think you can do it. So, so I, my advice would be to learn on the job, of course, uh, but also be deliberate and design it for your own career. I'm not sure you can design the career as much as some might say, but I think you can uh, make positive choices about how you might develop as an individual or as a team. What have been the biggest challenges for you personally? That's a good question. What, do you feel, what, what are you bad at that you find really hard to? <laughs> I'm bad at uh, taking my time. So all of my 360s and my uh, appraisals and all of these things you do with people. And I've, I've, I've done 360 appraisals a number of times. I've done pretty much every self-analysis, Myers-Briggs, Colors, all these things. Pretty much all of them say... Uh, I'm wonderful, of course. They all say, they all have pages and pages of positive things. But since we're on the negative things, the, the two negatives are, uh, I'm too flippant. And that can be misunderstood, particularly in very senior rooms, which is absolutely true. Uh, I have been flippant in rooms where I shouldn't have been flippant with senior cabinet ministers. And that has gone badly. Uh, so I've learned, not entirely, but I've learned to... Uh, roll that back without, I hope, removing some of the flippancy which I think is useful. And the second thing that is, is I find more difficult is uh, I, I, I'm too fast. So I come to conclusion too quickly, I uh, think fast and therefore I think I've, I've considered all the elements and I'm there and I'm married to an introvert, I work with a lot of introverts and they are often uh, more right than me, but a lot slower than me. So that has, I, I've, I've been on a 30 year journey to both in my marriage and in my professional life to come to terms with that. So I, I think I've got better at it, but sometimes in the government, particularly in the political conversations, speed is rewarded because the, the nature of the job is there's something today and it needs fixed by three o'clock. And that's okay if that's what's required, but sometimes it actually that's not the answer. The answer is to take a bit of time. The team comes up with a better solution than the fast thinkers did in the first 30 minutes. So that's the second thing I've tried to get better at, is uh, being slower without losing the enthusiasm and excitement and of, that, of that acute moment. So you must have to make a lot of difficult decisions in your job. How do you, how do you cope with that? So I'm, I'm not sure there are difficult decisions. I think there are uh, very challenging multi-factorial moments in these senior jobs. So as you, as, you, as you reach these points in the Scottish government, the decisions get more complex, but they're they're not any more difficult than they were in my clinic. I mean, in, in the clinic, when you were trying to resolve some family situation with cancer or, or even trying to manage the clinic in some way that was manageable for, because you had trainees, you had two consultants, you had 15 people waiting in the waiting room. I mean, the, the decisions are, are as complicated. 
I think what's different is you're making population choices. And they are sometimes harder to articulate. So if, you, if you're in the meeting uh, once every two months that we call the assurance board, that assurance board is deciding how to spend £17 billion at some level. So there's a lot of people there. There's clever people. There's a finance director. There's the three clinicians. There's the chief executive. But if you, if you take a moment to sit back, it can, it can become a little overwhelming, making choices about where we will, what we will prioritise, about what the politics will prioritise. And the politicians make a lot of those difficult decisions. That's what they're elected to do. And then we are the advisors and the implementers of their choices, often, whoever, whatever colour that government happens to be. So they, they can be difficult. It gets really difficult when the two things clash, uh, when the politics and the leadership clash with the family or the patients we serve. And that, that's most acute probably in things like new medicines decisions. And they've probably, be, I think that's pretty much the hardest policy area in government because whether we like it or not, we are a publicly funded health and social care system. We have a generous but fixed budget. There isn't, there isn't more money to go looking for. And inside that, there are choices about how we deal with pharmaceutical companies and what we do about cystic fibrosis drugs or kidney cancer drugs. And those moments can be uh, quite difficult. They're rare, but they can be quite difficult. Just moving on from that, there is a big focus at the moment on the well-being of the workforce and the problem with low morale. People talk about learned helplessness amongst clinical staff. How do you think clinical people can have their voice heard in government? Uh, so this is where I'll get a little bit perhaps controversial, although only the geeks are still listening, so maybe, <laughs> maybe it doesn't matter. I think the morale thing is overstated. I think since I graduated and became what you know as FY1s, what I know as GHOs in the good old days, it's always been hard. And it's always been tough. And I, I am unconvinced it's worse. However, that doesn't mean the problem isn't real and we shouldn't aim to help it. So I think we're perhaps more open about it than we were. And most major professions, if you look at them, uh, law is not dissimilar. Teaching is not dissimilar. There is definitely something about the next generation speaking up about forgive the shorthand, working conditions or being able to work at a, at a senior level and how that feels, particularly if they're trying to combine it with family life, with elderly relatives, with kids, with whatever it is they're trying to do. And the world has shrunk, so there are choices now for people, eh, particularly professionals, to travel the world a wee bit more and so people are more mobile. So I think the diagnosis is correct, but I don't like the hankering after, yeah, if we could just go back, it was much better in the good old days. It wasn't, it was exactly the same, and in some ways was worse. So that takes me to the second part of your question, which is still legitimate, which is, what's the treatment plan? So if the diagnosis says morale is not as good as it could be, joy in work is not as strong as it could be, then what do we do? Well, if only there were a magic answer, and there isn't. I know what it isn't. It isn't all about money and terms and conditions. It is partly about fixing some of that, particularly at the higher end, we need to 
deal with the pensions crisis for senior consultants and senior managers. We need to not separate clinicians from some of the senior management challenges. The senior managers in our, in our system are feeling the same stresses and strains often as our senior clinicians. And then those who come in at the bottom. So I spend quite a lot of time with your group, your clinical leaders, but there's also a very similar path and challenge for our a management cohort. So we have a management graduate training scheme. They're facing many of the same issues. Joy and work is not a phrase that is ever going to work in Scotland, particularly, but it's IHI's version of what, it, what that is. And I think the joy and work framework that they have developed by looking at organisations that have done this well, often outside healthcare, is pretty good. It, it talks about uh, purpose and value. It talks about uh, social activities. It talks about being part of a team where it's, it's collegial and uh, the purpose is joint. And that can be quite small. That would be in the microsystem. And it talks about linking to the overall purpose of whatever the organization is, be it the National Health Service or the hospital. So you have to create those microsystem teams to be coherent, to help each other, to be appropriately rewarded. You have to create family-friendly terms and conditions to allow people to move in and out of whatever it is they're doing, whether they've got a, a, a dying grandmother or a toddler, and be able to move in and out of those circumstances. And we're not as good at that as we could be. The Scottish Government is better at that than us, actually, in the health service, I think. And it's, it might seem stupid, but they have to socialise together. So you have to eat together. You have to have events for people leaving or people arriving. And when you go to high-performing systems in the world, Yun Shipping in Sweden is the obvious example in my head, it feels like a family. It's a little bit of a cliche, but it genuinely feels like a family. And the Alaskan health system, probably the finest health system in the world, worthy of another podcast, a separate conversation, it's probably the best system in the world. They make no attempt to divide work and family life. They know it's a false choice. They, you bring your family life to your work. You can't, you can't help but do that. So they actively encourage it. They have events where all the families come together. They, they understand the nature of mental health and how that applies to both you as a clinician and a manager and to the family you're serving. So, so you bring all of that together and you're supported through it. So I, I don't think there's a magic answer, but, but I think we have to start to take it more seriously. I think with part of my question with getting at the, so when I came to do my fellowship this year, a lot of people talked about me going to the dark side and were quite suspicious about me going into government. And it's how do we join the dots so that people feel that the government, the health service, um, local authorities can work together rather than as separate entities? Yeah, that's a, it's an eternal human system problem. Everybody believes that the other piece of the system is the bit that's not working properly. I mean, I think it's everybody except my bit that's not working properly. So it's these, it's these politicians or this parliament or it's the UK government. So it's easy to, I can, I can, I need a different verb for this, but I can trump your bit that isn't working with another bit that isn't working on top of it. Everybody, everybody can do that. So I, the, the the Clinical Leadership Fellows came from a desire to try to change that at some level, to try and give a new, young, relatively, set of leaders experience out with the norm. And that's, I think, what it's done in the last four or five years. It's created a set of people who now go back. I remember at last year's 
graduation event. I, I was very struck by the number of individuals who stood up to tell their year's story who had said they were fed up, they were disenfranchised, and they were thinking of leaving the medical or dental profession they had joined, but the, the year's fellowship had allowed them to see a bit more, uh, put their head up. They'd seen a breadth of royal college, regulator, government, whatever work that had encouraged them, and they were now going to stay in the environment and, and use it. So I think the fellowship is exactly that, both for the individuals who are in it, but also you have a responsibility to now tell that story more widely, I think, when you go back and be whatever you're all going to be, GPs, anaesthetists, dentists, whatever you're happening to be. And the, our theory is that that virus will spread its way into that new generation. And although they may not all be the medical directors of the future or the clinical directors of the future, at least they will have had a breadth of experience that others before them didn't have. What would you say to the people who are of the belief that not everyone is a leader. Like, so I'm a, I'm a doctor in training, I'm not interested in leadership. It is a completely legitimate choice to be a clinician for your career. I have great friends who are doing roughly what they did 20 years ago and have taken perhaps on a little bit more responsibility to look after trainees or to run their own practice or be a partner or so those things are that's a legitimate choice but don't pretend you're not a leader in that environment you're making choices about patients and families every day what you're not doing perhaps is managing a massive budget and leading 200 people that you don't have to do that to be a leader it just depends what you happen to be don't tell me that a mum going to nursery to drop off her two kids and going home to look after her dying grandmother is not leading something in that environment to, so it, it, all things are relative, right? The noun, is, the noun is irrelevant. However, Scotland needs 23 board medical directors, as it's presently constructed. It needs 32 chief officers of our integrated care system. It needs one chief executive of the National Health Service. So some people have to do those jobs, and I'd like it if they were good people if they had learned how to be leaders, if they were empowering of others, but also if they had content knowledge about the finances, the how to do the actual work, but also had an understanding of method and how to make change and improvement over time. We'll finish on a light-hearted note. In another life, what profession would you have liked to try? Oh, it's very straightforward. That's, a, that's an easy question. I, anybody who's read the BMJ in the last... A little while I did one of these BMJ Confidential, which is Cosmopolitan's questionnaire in the British Medical Journal, and the final question of it was, uh, if you weren't doing this, what would you do? And uh, I said, I'd be Jean Valjean on the West End stage. That's very straightforward. And uh, I sent an image of the BMJ Confidential to my mum, uh, and it said, I'd be Jean Valjean on the West End stage. And instead of reading all the professional pieces and all the other bits that were, I thought, very interesting, she came back and said, your dad says you can't because he's already doing that. So, well, it's never too late. No, indeed. He says I have to be the younger guy who's called Marius because he, he's going to be the old guy. Might be too late for that. Yeah. <laughs>